chapter 13 and 14. And um, so we've got uh, 24 chapters all together. So we're kind of just around the halfway point here, uh, working through the book. Hopefully it's been profitable to consider some of these things. Uh, the first thing I wanted us to notice is from page 121, where he says, I received a sealed envelope with some money in it for the orphans. The individual who gave it was deeply in debt, and I was aware that she had been repeatedly asked by her creditors for payment. I resolved to return the envelope without opening it because no one has a right to give while in debt. I did this although I knew there was not enough on hand to meet the expenses of the day. Even though God did supply later that day for his need, was this an appropriate response to tell someone not to give due to being in debt? What do you guys think about this one? Kevin? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so what would be some biblical reasons to support his statement or to argue against it? Please? Okay, oh no man, anything except to love one another. Okay. Um, is it sin to take out a mortgage on a house? Right now? Ever. Regardless. Oh, no. Not whether it's wise, but is it sin? If what? I'm sorry? I said if you don't have the money to back it. Okay, but the thing is, if you're talking about a 30-year loan, you can't guarantee you will have the money to back it for the duration of 30 years. I mean, just practical reality. That's why you have the value of the property. <laughs> okay. It's a, it's a gamble. I don't know if I would take it as far as say it's a gamble, but it is, it is risk involved, obviously. Right. Yeah, okay. Um, Okay, Rob? I mean, it probably is because the Bible says so, but everyone gets a loan, so it's a tricky one. I mean, if we played it... So not, not to pick on you, yeah, no. if everybody's doing it, is it okay to do it if the Bible says it's sin? <laughs> you know? So I'm not saying, I'm, I'm not picking on you, I'm just, let's think very specifically about this. I think we need to consider the context, right? So in Mueller's day, were people, as a rule, taking out loans for buying houses or vehicles? Not the way that they are today. There's a number of factors that were, that were different. I think the practical reality is there were a lot of people who were not in a position to ever own a house, so that just wasn't even something that crossed their mind. Um, what were more common things that people would have taken out credit for in their day? Devin? Okay, food. What else? Clothing, furnishings, things along those lines, right? Um, and when we're talking about those things, those things are much closer to uh, daily necessities of life. And so it seems to me that there is a difference between saying, I have no ability to buy food so I'm going to take out money so that I can feed my family and saying I'm going to take on a $2,000 a month mortgage because I want a really big house. There seem to be a kind of different scenarios, right? 
or um, I was out biking yesterday when somebody had a Corvette in their driveway, you know, it would be a difference between saying I need a vehicle for transportation, I need to spend $60,000 on a new Corvette, right? I don't know exactly what they cost, but somewhere in that ballpark, right? <laughs> Maybe more now, inflation, right? Probably 150. Um, yeah, so, but my point is this, there are, there are differences between trying to meet basic needs and having extravagances. Now let's set that back in the context of Mueller's concern of why he approached the orphanage the way that he did. He wanted to encourage people who are struggling to have their daily needs met to see God's ability to provide even for the basic necessities of life. So when we take all of those things together, his concern of taking out debts is, is something along the lines of, if this lady is not having her daily needs met, he doesn't want her to exercise faith by giving what little money came in to him for, to meet his needs because God's able to provide those needs in some other way. He wants first her to see God's provision in her own life to meet the needs that she has, something along those lines. So that's a kind of a different thing. This is not a, I don't think, a controlling thing. It's not a, uh, I, don't, I don't know what the right way to say it. It's a principle. Bob. Say the, the general thought behind his words is in principle based on his circumstances and the, what he was trying to accomplish, or would you say it is a biblical principle? <clears throat> I think it's clear that he was convinced of it in his specific situation. I think the broader question that we have to struggle through is: Is it true for us? Right. So, is does anyone have a right to give while in debt? Seven. Yeah. Yeah. Or if you have a credit card, for that matter, even if you don't have a house, if you have a credit card, there's a sense in which you're carrying a loan until you pay it off, right? It's a short-term thing, but still. So my point is just to get us to think about it. It's not to say that we can explore every every last nuance of it. Um, I think it's clear from the example of the Macedonians and Paul's praise of them that it is not sin to give while you don't have much or anything at all because he says out of their deep poverty their abundance overflowed. So there's that part. There's the principles that talk about the borrower being servant to the lender. There are factors to think about like if you can get 10% on $1,000 and your house loan is only 2 to 4%, it seems a matter of stewardship to consider investing the $1,000 and getting the 10% instead of immediately paying off the house loan. There's a number of factors to think about with that. So um, there's also the reality that in Israel, loans were not charged at interest. And so when you have a loan being charged at interest, the person who has made the loan to you is receiving some benefit. It's not, here's money that they could have to pay for their needs and they're getting nothing for it. It's anywhere from 2% to like 25% if you're talking some credit cards that the person who has lent you the money is making some sort of profit on the money that they have lent. So there's a number of factors where it's not 
for one with the biblical situation. Now, I think the principle still stands, there needs to be a degree of prioritization. Someone might have the most giving attitude in the world and say, I want to support this ministry and I'm going to give a thousand dollars. It seems to me to be presumptuous to say, I can't feed my family, and get to where I need to go, have, have, have clothes to wear just for basic necessities, nothing extravagant, just basics. I can't have any of those things but I'm going to give extraordinarily generously to this ministry that God's burdened me about. That seems to be a little bit presumptuous in that you're not the only one that God can use to provide it. Like, God could burden you to see that ministry provided for, and then you could pray about it, or you could go talk to someone that you know has the means to assist with it without you necessarily having to be the one who both has the burden and supplies the need in every circumstance. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. So... Again, these are things that I think we need to think through wisely. I think we just need to consider differences between Mueller's day and ours, between the Bible and either of the two situations, and there's a lot of things going into it. But in this case, in this specific case, was it an appropriate response for him to return the money to her? I think we'd say yes. Okay? And it was interesting to see how God provided nonetheless. Now, if God had not there's a point at which he could have said, well, maybe I should have kept the money, but he wasn't willing to do it at her expense, right? A little bit later, someone writes him and says, you know, I, if you can tell me how much you need, I will gladly give to it, but if you don't really need anything right now, there's other people that I could give the money to. Mueller was unwilling to answer how much their daily needs were in that instance. Was that the right response, to be unwilling to disclose their financial status to someone in order for that person to be committed to give? Rob? It was very interesting for him to do that. Yeah, yeah. That puts the giver on the spot, right? Yeah, but why does he do it? Think about the principles we just talked about. Why would he not tell them, here's how much we need? Sandra? He wants to see how God's going to provide, okay? He also, I mean, there's this principle of God loves a cheerful giver, and there's a degree to which if we give in a way that is um, calculating, there is perhaps some measure of being unwilling to trust God to work out all of the details of what we've given. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, let's say you go to somebody and you say, you have this ministry. I'm going to give you $500, but here's this really specific thing I feel like you have to use it for. If that organization then chooses to use it to, for something else, there's a degree of betrayal of trust on them because they haven't done what you asked. Now, legally, they're not obligated to do that. Once you give the money, you can't put conditions on it unless you've got something formally written out, as far as I know. Uh, but there is a degree of ethical responsibility for an organization to try to honor the wishes of someone who's given a gift. To the degree that we are overly specific in the way that we give gifts, I think there is perhaps a measure of thinking, well, I want to give the gift, but I also want to make sure it's used the right way, which means we're still a little bit hesitant about having given it in the first place. The point where this comes to mind for me is, is it wrong for us to call the mission agency and say, how much support do you guys need for so-and-so versus just giving a particular amount? And I think the answer would be that it's not wrong. 
but it is interesting in light of his response here. And I'm not saying we have to have the same response as him. It's just something that came to mind as I was thinking about this. Um, so the bottom line, I think, if we're going to have this attitude of being calculating and being controlling and saying, I'm only going to give if I can make sure it's used exactly the way that I want and that it all works out in the right way, I think that there can be a degree of us not really trusting God to make it all work out in the end that we would be better off being ready to give. If we trust the people enough to have given them the money in the first place, I would hope that we would trust that they're then going to use it the right way. I guess something like that. Any more thoughts on that point? I'm not saying it's wrong to designate gifts. I'm just saying this is sort of the attitude of, or this is often the attitude of rich benefactors who say, I want recognition. This is the memorial bench purchased by so-and-so. And I think we need to be careful about that sort of attitude in the context of the church. Sandra? When you say we, you as a family, the church as a whole, anybody, what would the situation look like if you did or didn't have the debt in context of giving? That's what I'm trying to understand. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think in that situation, I don't think I would say, well, I wouldn't tell them about Jesus. I would be a little bit careful to uh, go overboard and saying, here's all the amazing ways God's provided to meet my needs, knowing that they know the track record of what the situation has been up to that point. Um, so, but I mean, I think that's true about a lot of things. I think it's really easy for us to have a posture of, I have learned or I am doing so well with. And the reality is, at the moment when we start to think that, we're in danger of, I think, finding out that we're actually not doing as great as we thought with that, uh, overcoming that temptation or dealing with that problem or things being as secure as we expect. So I just think there has to be a degree of humility in all those things. So, Rob? I know we're just extrapolating a little bit. Yeah. But so let's say as an example only, uh, a pastor um, filed for bankruptcy. Right. I mean, that would be a tricky one too. Sure. I mean, does he get, is he precluded from being a pastor or is he removed as a pastor as, you know, it's just a... Yeah. I think that there would need to be a serious conversation with the church and the pastor, between the church and the pastor, about the conditions that led to the bankruptcy. Uh, because, let's say that he filed for bankruptcy because there was some sort of massive medical bills he couldn't pay in the context of trying to care for his family. That would be one thing. 
If it was he's filing for bankruptcy because of gambling debt, that's a whole other thing. If it's he's filing for bankruptcy because the church is being stingy, that's a whole other thing. If he's filing for bankruptcy because he went out and bought a bunch of new stuff and didn't plan wisely, that's another thing. Like there's all these scenarios of what could be going on that um, I think the answer might be slightly different depending on the circumstances. But I think there are some pretty clear circumstances in which his judgment would need to be evaluated as to his fitness in that moment to lead the church and particularly to handle money. And the same thing would be true for, you know, let's say that there's somebody who at some point had gotten, um, had been convicted of uh, embezzlement. I think there would need to be at the very least some decent lapse of time between the conviction for embezzlement and that person being the church treasurer. I mean, I don't think that that forever and always says that person can't be, but if you know someone's specific temptation, I mean, and this is where it gets really tricky. Let's say that someone uh, had been convicted of some sort of crime against another person. Can that person ever work in like kids ministry or youth ministry? I think that one would be really difficult to, to work through. I think we have to balance the realities of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit transforms people's lives. Sin is real and its roots run deeper than we realize. And there is wisdom in being cautious. Bob? Going back to the first scenario for a second, I just thought something. Yeah. So he's the pastor of a church and he has all of these other ministries that he's leading. Yep. Would there be any delineation between giving to the church and giving to the other ministries in regards to being in debt? In his mind, there wasn't. But are you saying, should there be? Yeah. I'm not sure what would be the, what would be the difference. Well, so, the, if the biblical principle to give to God, granted, we don't have a specific percentage. Sure. But with the understanding that we are told to give. Right. If we are... It, it's not. It seems uh, okay, to be I see what you're saying. Yeah. To give to God directly, not necessarily to all these other ministries. All those other ministries seem to be more of a, a above and beyond okay. type deal. So if you're in debt, would you say? To me, this is something I've always always struggled with because I've always been in some form of debt. Right. I can't see not giving. Yeah. Period. Yeah. But I can see maybe the wisdom in not giving to all sorts of things compounding the debt. I guess I've struggled with this tension too. So for example, if let's say that I'm in a position where God's met my needs, and let's say that one of you is in a position where you're struggling to make ends meet, there's a degree to which I would feel somewhat guilty if you said, I feel like it's my responsibility to carry the entire load of supporting the pastor, knowing your specific situation. And that's where I think 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 comes into play, that there's sort of this up and down flow where God says there's times when you have abundance and you meet the needs of those who don't, and there's times when you have nothing and, and other people step in and fill those needs. And so I do think that there is something to be said, given the example of people giving out of poverty and all those sorts of things, the yes, there should be a degree of giving to God's work regardless of our financial situation, even if it's a very small amount. However, 
I think there would also be wisdom at the same time of saying we're getting lots of requests for money. The Police and Firefighters Association, the veterans thing, um, uh, the Girl Scout cookie people come down your street, whatever, right? You're not obligated to give to every person who asks you for money and you have to prioritize in that situation. And at that point, maybe the only two things that you're giving to is giving to God's work and trying to make ends meet. And I, I want to be careful with this too because I'll be honest, I've never been in a position where I was seriously afraid that for a long stretch I would not be able to have, have food and a place to live. Let's be honest with you about that. It has been my observation though, despite that, the times when I have been most concerned about holding on to what God has given to me are also the times when I've had the most concern about bills and things that are coming in. And the times when I've been willing to be generous even in, even against that desire to say I want to never have to worry about these things, God sometimes has met needs in very surprising ways. So, I mean, I guess, let me just give you an example. When, uh, when we came here to the church, I don't think that I was, um, I don't think that I was fearful that we were immediately not going to be able to pay a mortgage or something like that. But there was a reality where things were going to be pretty tight and we were going to have to be pretty disciplined to make it all work. Then God provided the job at the school and a whole bunch of other things and worked out some things with health insurance so that there were probably in the ballpark of what I expected to be $10,000 in expenses every year that got covered in other ways. So my point in saying that is not to say, look at my example of great faith, because I was, there was a lot of me trying to scheme to make it all work out and a lot less of actual faith in God at that point than there should have been. My point is just to say, God can work out some of those things in surprising ways and so if our attitude is, well, God can't work it out, so I'm not going to give, and all these sorts of things, I think that we need to re-examine our, our thinking and our hearts. So, is that... Okay. The, yeah, so, giving to the orphanage was a good and noble thing, but he wasn't willing to accept money for it. Giving to the church is, I think, something that God calls us to do throughout life, even though the amounts may vary, and we, that's something we have to wrestle with God about. Someone came and asked him for prayer, specifically for a good reception from his parents, and then also particularly for the salvation of, I believe it was his father, might have also been, yeah, for his, uh, his father, father to be converted. It says, today this brother returned. The Lord has already answered one part of the prayer. He was kindly received, contrary to all natural expectations. May the Lord now help us both to look for an answer to the other part of our prayer. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. The father of this brother lived 10 more years after August 1st until he was about 86 years of age. He continued in a life of much opposition and sin, uh, in opposition to the truth, and the prospect of his conversion became darker and darker. But at last, the Lord answered prayer. This aged sinner was entirely changed, trusted in the Lord Jesus for the salvation of his soul, and became as much attached to his believing son as before he had been opposed to him. He wanted his son near him as much as possible to read the Holy Scriptures to him and to pray with him. So, 10 years they pray for this man to be saved. He's 86 before he trusts Jesus. What should we learn from this? Evan? Kind of 
Yeah, we can write people off, think that they can't be saved, and God can still save them. Okay, good. What else? Bob? I can only imagine the rejoicing. Yeah? Must have been fast. Hmm. Yeah. Because the more desperate the situation, the longer we pray, the longer we have to wait, the more we praise him when he answers. So if we put that together with last week, last week he said something like, God had us persist long in prayer because he delights to hear our prayers. And then here there's this increased rejoicing because of an answered prayer after such a long time of praying for it. Okay, That's a struggle to do. And I... I'm not saying this from a position of I have prayed for things for 15 years and seen God answer and so you should learn from my example. I'm saying this from a position of I think I, I recognize the struggle to pray for things over a long stretch. But there are those of you who have family members that you're probably tempted to stop praying for because it doesn't seem like they're ever going to trust Jesus. And I'm just saying don't give up. pages later, those who trust in the Lord will never be disappointed. Some who helped us for a while may fall asleep in Jesus. Some may grow cold in the service of the Lord. Some may be as desirous as ever to help but no longer have the means. And some may have both a willing heart to help and the means but may see it as the Lord's will to give in another way. If we were to lean upon man, we would surely be disappointed. But in leaning upon the living God alone, we are beyond disappointment and beyond being forsaken for any reason. What are some things that you notice in his statements here? Rob? In regards to that last question, though, I think Mueller said his father passed and he didn't know the Lord, or he didn't know if he knew the Lord. So it is interesting, Mueller's father may not have come to know the Lord, but this other person's father mm. did, or family member did. Just... Yeah, praying faithfully if someone you love has not trusted Christ and died, and praying for someone else's family member to trust Christ, that would be a hard thing, but a, a good thing to do. Good. What, what else do we see from, from this quote about trusting in God and people's ability or willingness to give toward a particular ministry? Yeah. It's at the heart of like, his whole goal. Right. right, to focus on God's provision, not on man. And he's just, again, kind of elaborating on how to do that. Yeah. Here's all these reasons why people may not give, God's still able to provide. Okay, good. Anything else that we notice about this? Sandra? Yeah, he's grateful for those who have given, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, there needs to be a degree of gratitude. Okay, good. Anything else? Okay. Building along these same ideas, he says, Many people have commented in such a, that such a way of living must cause the mind to continually think of how to obtain food and clothes and thus become unfit for spiritual work. He goes and says, no, and here's why. And then a little bit later, do not think that these answers to prayer are only for us and cannot be enjoyed by all the saints. And then again, the part that I left out for sake of space, 
not everybody's called to start an orphanage or have these ministries or do the exact same thing as us, but God can provide for you too. And then he says, prove the faithfulness of God by carrying your every want to him. But if you live in sin and if you willfully and habitually do things which you know are contrary to the will of God, then you cannot expect him to hear you. And talks references Psalm 66. I think is the passage where it says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me. So how can we exercise dependence on God without doing Mueller's ministry? Like, to his point that he said, not everybody's called to do exactly what I'm doing. How can you and I still exercise the same kind of dependence on God, or should we, or what might that look like? Mary. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so not worrying constantly about where things are going to come from. Okay? Sandra? Okay, yeah. Claiming and remembering God's promises. Okay. What else? Even though we're not all called to open up a orphanage, we are all called to serve. Okay. And I think that's part of this, is if he was just sitting at home, going to church here and there, you know, saying, God, provide for me. Yeah. Big difference than, hey, I'm actively serving, Lord, provide for the needs for me to do, live and do and serve. Right. Yeah. I think about the motivations in James where it talks about... Um, when you ask God for things, why are you asking Him for them? Because if it's just because you really want it and it's going to be um, like a consumer kind of attitude, give me this thing so I can use it up, so I can get more things that I can use up, James seems to indicate God's not going to really honor that kind of an attitude in the way that he honored Mueller's request where he says, I am asking you, God, for things so that I can do them on behalf of other people, to Bob's point. Evan, did you have your hand up or someone else? I don't know. No? Okay. Um, yeah, so I, I think we would agree that we should exercise dependence on God, absolutely, right? It may look a little different than what Mueller did, but I think, I think it is good for us to learn from his example, even if we're not convinced that we need to sell all that we have and go wander around as itinerant evangelists or something. I think there's a degree to which that was a specific role that God calls specific people to do and not everyone. You know, there's a difference between a Paul who's wandering around and a James who stays in Jerusalem, right? Or a difference between the 12 disciples and disciples in general. Um, but against a society that says, you are the only way that your future can be provided for or government is the only way that your future can be provided for or some combination of the two and against an attitude that says everything that you have should be spent on the enjoyment of your life to make you as happy as possible and against an attitude that says the more things that you accumulate the happier that you will be I think this is a good example and a good reminder that you can have very little and still have joy that there is joy in serving others far more than there is joy in serving yourself and that God is able to provide even if 
we give up everything that we have at some point in our life, God's still able to provide down the road. Again, I think it takes a pretty significant degree both of faith and of wisdom to know when those moments are, but I don't think that we should uh, rule them out completely. I guess what I'm trying to say is, let's say, let's say for example, um, I don't know, you had, unbeknownst to you, a rich, a rich uncle who, who died and he left you $100,000. There would be a strong temptation to say, I need to save every last penny of that because I don't know what's going to happen over the next 20 years. I would just caution you to say or encourage you to think, what are ways that I can invest that in doing ministry for God here and now in addition to also being wise about the future? not saying you have to give every last part of it away, and I'm not necessarily saying that it should be given entirely or exclusively to... Um, I'm going to be careful here. When we have needs of the church of maintaining the building so that we can do things a particular way, I don't think there's anything wrong with spending money along those lines. I do think that my goal would be that we spend as little as possible on decorative kind of things or things that are not essential and as much as possible on actual ministry kind of things and recognize that a lot of ministry kind of things are a lot less about money than they are about how we spend our time and our, our other resources, our skills and things. Um, but taking all those things into consideration, there are ways to invest in the lives of people around us that are not going to make sense if you go talk to a banker and say, hey, what should I do with this money? That's what I'm trying to say. Here's a person who has needs and whatever else. Bob? We've talked about this in different discussions before. It does seem that we have such a hindrance, not only because we have so much, but because of the way things are structured in this country and how we are constantly, even if we're not watching TV, we're constantly comparing ourselves to how other people are doing. Right. And we're seeing the ungodly prosper. And we're seeing all of this focus on stuff. It seems like such a, an overwhelming uh, obstacle to serve because it is that constant distraction to get stuff, to maintain stuff, to prepare for potential needs in the future and I don't know you know apart from getting rid of stuff I don't see how we can overcome it I think part of that how do we fight against the attitudes in our culture of accumulating stuff and everything is about me and all about that I think some of it is just saying, you know, to the degree that I'm unwilling to, for example, show hospitality because I feel like people will compare my house to their house or something might happen. I might get a stain on my couch. I might get a glass might get broken because somebody drops it, like those sorts of things. I don't think we should be careless and, you know, everybody has different, I had a, I had a friend when I was little and my mom said hey I know you really like your sort of the Lord little armor plastic armor set and if so-and-so comes over there's a decent chance he's gonna break it why don't you put it away in the closet it's okay to do stuff like that right but at the same time 
I don't even know where that is now, so it really wouldn't have mattered. Uh, we need to see everything that God has given to us. The objects in our house, our house itself, our health, our time, our money, all of those things as finite resources to be used in service to Him. So when we have that attitude, then that's a starting point toward fighting against the attitudes of our culture that say, accumulate stuff, preserve it as long as possible, preserve yourself as long as possible, because the reality is we all get old and everything breaks in ourselves and in our possessions. Don't store up treasure where moth eats and rust destroys. And if we don't know that, living in the state that we live, we're pretty blind to reality, right? Uh, or where thieves break in and steal. So how do we store up treasure in heaven? Well, um, we're going to talk about that here at the end of this, so let's get down to that point. There was a guy who was an older man who was a baron. That was kind of the structure of the nobility in Germany at that time, Prussia. Um, learning from the baron who served a young skeptic and was used by God to witness to him, why should we serve more than we argue? So this man was a skeptic, this young university student. He always wanted to get this older guy in an argument. Here's why God is false. Here's why your religion is stupid. Here's why, like all those sorts of things. And the man would not engage him. He came alongside him, he ministered to his needs, he fed him, he cleaned up after him. And finally, he came to a point where um, the student could restrain himself no longer and burst out, Baron, how can you do all this? You see, I do not care about you. How are you able to continue to be so kind to me and serve me like this? The Baron replied, my dear young friend, I have learned it from the Lord Jesus. I wish you would read through the Gospel of John. Good night. The student now, for the first time in his life, sat down and read the Word of God with an open heart and a willingness to learn. Up to that time, he never read the Holy Scriptures unless he wanted to find out arguments against them. God blessed him. From that time, he became a follower of the Lord Jesus and continued in the faith ever since. Why are we so convinced that the way to get people to trust Jesus is to show them how their beliefs are stupid and all those sorts of things instead of coming alongside them and serving them and showing them the love of Jesus. Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples by one-upping their arguments online. By this all men will know that you are my disciples by showing them how much better your life is because you're following Jesus. By this all men will know that you are my disciples by talking to them about all the same things that they want to talk about. No, they'll know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another and if that love then spills out toward the people around us. Now, is there a place for apologetics? Yes, but not, and you know, all right. Who's the really abrasive guy, Todd somebody or other? What? Todd. Todd Friel. Todd Friel, all right. I know some of you guys love Todd Friel. Here's my two cents on him. I'm just going to throw this out here. I don't see Todd Friel and think, love for God and other people, I really want to listen to him. I'm not saying his arguments are false. I'm not saying there's no value in considering them. I'm simply saying if you take that tone with your neighbor, I'm pretty sure that's not going to be the reason they come to Jesus. And we can pick on other people in other weeks. I'm just saying, as an example, this is what I'm trying to say. It is so easy for people to be so argumentative 
I was just reading the end of Ephesians 4 last night. Um, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. We need to firmly uphold the truth. But there is a way to speak the truth in a calm and gentle and loving tone that is in no way undermining the truth, but at the same time is not just coming across as I have all the answers, so listen to me. Because ultimately it's God's Spirit that persuades people, but we don't help our case just by being in their face and rude about the way that we approach it. So, Bob? I think he's more abrasive to Christians because of their inconsistency than he is to unbelievers. No, I, it, that is who I'm thinking about. Again, I'm not... How do I put this? I'm not saying he doesn't love Jesus. I think an average unbeliever who were to watch his show would not come away saying, that's something I want to see more of. And I don't think it's just because of the truth that he's saying. So, I'm not going to argue with you guys about it. I realize I've touched a nerve. I just want you to wrestle with it and think about it because this is something I have, a, I have a struggle with feeling like I can argue people into trusting Jesus. My point is simply to say, looking at the example of this man, he refused to do that with this young skeptic. He just came alongside and showed love to him and served him in the way that Jesus served other people, and that was the pathway that God used to open this man's eyes to Jesus. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. And, and to be fair, there were times when Paul said very direct things. My point is not, should we say very direct things, because there's a time and a place for it. My point is, if someone were to walk away from an encounter with you, is their disposition, that person knows it all, uh, doesn't care about me, all those sorts of things, or is there, is there walking away, that person is humble, they're absolutely, unshakably committed to the truth, but there is something that I don't understand about how this person is being humble and devoted to the truth and all these sorts of things. Again, there's so much about this that we don't have time to go into all the nuances of. But a little bit later, he says, when we pray, we speak to God. This exercise of the soul can be best performed after the inner man has been nourished by meditation on the word of God. The weaker we are, the more meditation we need to strengthen the inner man. Without spiritual preparation, the service, the trials, and the temptations of the day can be overwhelming. I'll leave this question with you because I want to get to the next thing quickly as we finish up. How have you found these ideas to be true in your own life that you need spiritual preparation for everything that happens in the day? Think about that. Reflect on it. Here's the last part here. Our calling is a heavenly calling. Our inheritance is a heavenly inheritance and our citizenship is in heaven. But if we believers in the Lord Jesus lay up treasures on earth, then our hearts will be on earth. Laying up treasures in heaven will draw the heart heavenward. It brings along with it, even in this life, precious spiritual blessings as a reward of obedience to the commandment of our Lord. So, uh, Matthew 6, 19-21, don't lay up treasures on earth, lay up treasures in heaven. 
where all the things of this life can't touch it. 1 Peter 1.4 says, You are not bought with earthly things, but with the precious blood of Jesus. So how do we apply these truths in connection with our present circumstances? What does it look like for us to lay up treasures in heaven and not on earth? Devin? Okay, spending time on things that matter for eternity, like people's souls, okay, and enriching our spiritual lives. Okay, what else? How do we, how do we lay up treasures on heaven instead of on earth? Sandra? Okay, being interested in the lives of other believers, you said in their prayer requests? Oh, spiritual growth in Christ. Okay. See, the air conditioner is not just a problem for you guys. Sometimes it's a problem for me. So, All right. So being concerned in other people's spiritual growth. Okay. What else? Huh? I don't know what's been said, but we think about what we give towards attaining things on earth. Right. It's our time. Yeah. It's our energy. It's our devotion. Yeah. So it's diverting those things to God, to right. spiritual things. Our time, energy, and devotion to service, to doing the things that, to building God's kingdom. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, so just by way of example, is it wrong to go to a baseball game? All of you need to repent then. Walk down the aisle after the service. Not all of you, just the ones that were there Friday night. Okay, it's not wrong to go to a baseball game, but we might want to ask ourselves, is it wisest to buy season tickets for a baseball game? You know, something like that, right? So moderation and prioritization and all of those sorts of things and the way that we approach things for ourselves versus for other people versus for God. So lots more to think about with that. I would challenge you to reflect on that question some more. Let's uh, close in prayer. Dear God, help us to consider these things. Um, not that we have to end up in the exact same place that Mueller was, but I think there's a lot that we can learn about just how to approach life in the midst of a society that is very selfish and that we are easily soaking in the same ideas from. And so just help us to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed as our minds are renewed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.